So um, first of all, a few method and practice preliminaries, queer and otherwise. Um, in their essay, Doing Being Deviant, Deviant Studies, Description and the Queer Ordinary, Heather Love remind us, oh, I should say, I'll be using the generic they for all, all authors, um, unless their gender is particularly important um, to the argument that they're making, in part because I do not know, I only often can guess what kind of pronoun they might use. Also, it occurs to me that um, that practice of ascribing gender is one that's, that tends to be ethnocentric based on what kinds of linguistic communities we have access to, where other names we can't really guess. And we all know it's bad practice to ascribe race based on how we look at somebody, so practicing that, uh, starting to think about that in terms of gender. Oh, I hope that wasn't Heather Love saying this is no good. So Heather Love remind us of uh, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's critique of the critical academic who, so, uh, who theorizes social ills, but remains just as immersed in and focused on accruing prestige from other academics who have status. Palia May Betcher echoed this question in an interview on trans philosophy entitled Theorizing Closeness where they suggest that we start by asking ourselves, quote, for whom are we theorizing or philosophizing? And what is the aim of that endeavor? And they add, very often it turns out that philosophers are philosophizing for other philosophers. And we, as academics, may have to admit that even if we are committed to philosophizing for broader communities, that we, as academics as critical as we might be of trickle-down economics may have nestled into our own versions of trickle-down of ideas. We may have done so by prioritizing our research and publications, but actually giving relatively little thought to how we can build sustainable relationships and communities to learn with those communities who we commit ourselves to in and beyond the university. And it was very interesting, I was two days ago, I was at the uh, American Philosophical Association and actually on two of the panels that were on indigenous uh, philosophy, um, the, the philosopher, Native American philosophers actually emphasized, please stop theorizing about us and start by building relationships. Um, and one of them also said, I wish land acknowledgements actually were more, less just a ritualized gesture and more about actually building these kinds of relationships. So um, it seems like we, we might not have given enough thought about this so far. Um, there are of course also no easy answers to this conundrum and surely the neoliberalization of higher education and outcomes assessment mania at our institutions do not help. While this experience of disempowerment certainly corresponds to objective realities, it also can all too easily feed into a defeatism that excuses us from trying to imagine alternatives and attempt to organize and act collectively. Reflecting on the emergence of queer theory, Love emphasized that Queer theory started as a small but collective and very strategic refusal to do academic business as usual. 
So in a first step of renewing that refusal, refusal of business as usual, we might reflect on, make explicit, and be more intentional about what values guide our own academic practices, how we can further those values, what barriers we encounter, and how we might counter them. So today, more specifically, I want to turn to ordinariness and intimacy in particular to try out what potentials they might hold for us for different ways of doing philosophy. In their book, Ordinary Affects, Kathleen Stewart introduced the ordinary as the affective infrastructure that suffuses our everyday and delimits, enables, and shapes possibilities. They write, ordinary affects work not through meanings per se, but rather in that way that they pick up density and texture as they move through bodies, dreams, dramas, and social worldings of all kinds. Their significance lies in the intensities they build and in what thoughts and feelings they make possible." End quote. So the ordinary comprises a kind of intimacy and anonymity at the same time. It is constantly fashioned and experienced in embodied and visceral ways, and its social and political relevance lies in how what is sedimented as ordinary then delimits and animates how we reproduce social realities every day and what alternative trajectories can appear as possible, important, and urgent. So there is a politicity in hearing the production and reproduction of ordinariness. And um, one thing that we might think about more, and we might discuss this in the Q&A, is what it means that in the current instantiation of cognitive capitalism, we're in a system that actually thrives on innovation, originality, and the extraordinariness um, of whatever is new, and how that actually um, undermines, if we think about building what, what sediments into ordinariness. So looking for what kind of ordinariness do we want is actually something that, of course, is non-marketable in a market that, that thrives on, on newness um, and the extraordinary. One practice, to my mind, through which collective imaginaries and sensibilities are generated and sustained are aesthetic practices. And, um, I'm particularly interested in how advertising and visual discourses that surround us and with which um, we interact in semi-conscious way inscribe norms and expectations. So we've done a lot of work on Benjamin and the early Frankfurt School and that was one thing they were very interested in and sort of opposing a kind of um, cultural pessimism that said, ah, the world's going to hell now that we have the movies, um, saying, well, actually, this is really interesting. People are going, going to the movies. They're half distracted. They're entertained. But that educates our senses. And I think the, the, so our, so how we are surrounded by visual discourse, and particularly advertisement, which we mostly ignore, but also constantly encounter, really shapes how we, our, our perceptive frames, how we make sense of the world. I mean, not exclusively, but also. So, and specifically what I'd like to explore with you today is how as queer bodies of color are given greater force and presence, particularly in advertising, 
it becomes often harder to grasp the structural persistence of whiteness as a norm and goal. That also means that in turn, we're also continuously facing the challenge of imagining and fashioning anti-racist, transformative aesthetic practices to educate our senses otherwise. So I'm not arguing that all political work is reducible to aesthetics. It would be lovely if it were, um, likely isn't. But our social and political practices and institutions ha always have aesthetic dimensions. Um, and if you're wondering why I'm located in a religion department, I tend to think about these practices also in terms of rituals or liturgies, which of course coming from the Greek meant public service, so liturgia. Um, so these rituals that sediment into and uphold how institutions work. So the fact that you all became very, very quiet as the time of starting uh, drew near uh, indicates something of our expectation of how this, this space, this institution, how knowledge exchange will, will work. It's a, it's a form of a visceral embodied and aesthetic practice. Okay, going to the question of queer bodies and anti-racism. To think through some of these issues, I want to look, take a closer look at two commercials that develop what I would call a queer aesthetic around gender, sex, race, and class. So in examining, so this is the layout. I want to first examine uh, with a first ad um, and roughly argue that perhaps counterintuitively the centering and privileging of whiteness is often also enshrined in our cultural and political imaginary exactly through the expansion of gender queer gains and often particularly insidiously when queer bodies made visible are queer bodies of color. And then as a, in a second step, I want to look at another ad as a kind of counterpoint to see if that can help us elaborate pointers for a way of engaging and fashioning queer and trans methods of exploring and learning and collective world making. Okay, so the first ad, Extraordinary gen uh, Gender Queerness Fluid Whiteness, um, already, there's so much visual <laughs> material these days, so it's very great. Uh, the first ad is actually from 2017, uh, and it was uh, by the makeup company Maybelline, which fe features Shayla Mitchell and Manny Gutierrez. So um, they're, I learned from my students, they're very important uh, internet uh, influencers, and Manny Gutierrez particularly renowned insofar as they are a um, Latinx person who's really risen to, to influence. So it's a quite a remarkable example of queerness as a style becoming available to people of color within the context of wealth and glamour. And in that way, I think the ad allows us to grasp how despite the economic privilege, those embodiments must in the end reaffirm their relationship to whiteness and maleness.
Okay. So, <laughs> my friends always find it funny that I, of all people, look at makeup commercials. I'm really the least makeup person. <laughs> but <laughs> I love this. Um, so, first of all, what's notable to me is that we need a narrative that justifies why a cisgender appearing man would enjoy putting on makeup. So, and moreover, that narrative situates the gender transgressive desire of the Latino character in the context of being supportive of a black woman getting bossed up. So second, the class dynamic running through the commercial are intricately bound up with both gender and race. On the one hand, is clearly an advertisement that is readying us for, as the audience for a more diverse managerial and well-off class. The Latino and black couple are being served by a white male bellhop who actually seems quite content in, in that job of serving them. But on the other hand, the setting also rarefies where Latinx trans femininity can take place. Not only must it be sheltered by the liberal bastion of New York, so weird things happen in New York, but the Latinx trans femininity or male body gender queerness seems to require a swanky Manhattan hotel suite as the vessel to contain this transgendering high above the roofs of New York, so any really removed from everyday life. And then third, the gender queering of applying makeup needs to be counterbalanced by aspiring to paler rather than darker skin color. So it's actually wider than, than their original skin tone when one puts them next to each other. But this first part, and in some ways, we could imagine this as an ad that, that can function, right? An end where they throw open the suitcase with the mascara. And it could be, yeah, wow we all are into the mascara, because that's what we're supposed to be, because we should be buying it. But oddly, this, this first part is followed by the second half of the narrative. And that means, so far, the narrative had presented us a wealthy, young, racially diverse, but heterosexual couple, where the female body character appears not only as stably female, but also feminine. And the, and the only appearance of a white body was to serve the people of color. The one small gesture of whiteness was the application of paler make makeup. Otherwise, the narrative exclusively centered on two people of color and queerness as gender queerness, even if it's made possible by wealth. But it turns out two people of color cannot simply enjoy themselves and each other. Um, we need a white person come back. And it seems to me that this second part has a crucial effect on how gender, sexuality, race, and class are negotiated. Because what we have is our bellhop has now returned as petty thief, right? So, but he's actually a glammed up intruder. It's actually, it's easy to miss in the moment, but he actually is even still wearing his, his name tag. So even though he's in a golden suit, having literally become the golden boy, right? Bo both people of color mostly wear black or dark couture, the bellhop is still wearing the name tag. So he still is and is not the working class boy. 
but as golden boy, he now can enter into a constellation with the rich people of color. The conceit of the commercial is, of course, that um, the mascara is irresistible, uh, but it also does more here. So the visual narrative prepares us for the shifts of the intersection of class, gender, and race that are already well underway. So we encounter here a world where Oh, sorry, I've lost my connection. Sorry. Okay. Um, we, we, okay, so the shifts that are underway. So we, we're now in a world where white maleness no longer inhabits the prime of place and also doesn't know anymore with confidence that it has the right to access and appropriate everything it sees. And yet there is a mythification and irresistibility and acquisitiveness that intersects with whiteness and also does not get really undercut in the ambiguous last scene. In that scene, right, this is the last scene, the white male character just simply um, doesn't entirely simply assert that everything and everyone in the world exists for his pleasure. Leaving the class hierarchy intact, it is the desire of the two people of color who are paying guests that authorizes the bellhop. But whiteness reemerges as the hinge orchestrating and limiting the triangularity among the three characters. So if you look at the final shot, this is in the final shot, the camera has us as the audience take the gaze of the bellhop. The bellhop, the camera, we are now the sole focus of the desire of the two wealthy people of color. Gender and number make the scene queer, yet what is notable is that the cute white bellhop becomes the object of desire in a way where his presence overshadows and makes forgotten everything else, whatever else has been going on between the two people of color. So they both just simply, both are into the white, white guy. White maleness, as I said, has no longer the automatic prime of place, but when he is glammed up, when he proves that he has the abil ability to embody the promise of the adventurous, transgressive subject of entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurship, um, ESL acquisition, this shouldn't make up any words. <laughs> the white male body still turns into the center for attention and desire. So I'm, I'm not saying that the ad here reestablishes easily um, white maleness to its privileged position. Rather, the what we see here is a continuation of investments in whiteness that work slightly differently, maybe even more insipidly certainly in line with this stage of performative creative capitalism in which, into which we seem to be moving. So whiteness remains valorized, but more now as a desirable commodity and currency in the form of a style, ritual, and accessory. The bellhop, his maleness, his whiteness are cast as irresistibly desirable as the boy toy for the people of color. The bellhop wants in on what the people of color have and really on what the genderqueer masculine Latinx character has, but not the other way around. 
We can grasp the privileging of maleness and whiteness in this ad, perhaps most acutely by how the black woman is relegated to a necessary and yet also expendable role. She's necessary to legitimate the queering of the Latinx character both in terms of gender and later sexuality. But unlike the other two characters, her blackness and her femaleness get eventually excluded from the promise of hip queer fluidity. And one thing about that is also body shape, right? There's absolutely no um, place for, for uh, a not thin body in this. And the, the black body can't really, black female body does not get to cross any of these boundaries. So the interrelations between race, class, gender, and sex are queer, indeed. All characters, regardless of gender, inhabit the desire to get bossed up. Capitalism, that means, feminizes all of us in the sense that feminization still implies subordination. So in its neoliberal instantiation, first of all, capitalism has made girls also of the white men. And secondly, it enlists all of us into a world we're moving up to being the boss is perpetually promised as performatively attainable. But at the same time, the commercial actually reinscribes a hegemonic skinny, young, white, hip maleness, although it's not immediately monetizable for the bellhop. He remains the bellhop, right? name tag. But an investment in whiteness is elicited from and reinforced in the audience, in us, because it is what allows the shrugging of the bellhop's shoulders to transform a petty theft into an endearing, innocent desire that is actually even kind of edgy because it also transgresses against traditional straight white maleness. So what works as endearing here is mediated very clearly through class, gender, body type, and race, which I think becomes quite legible if we take this scene um, and say picture um, a person that might more regularly clean um, hotel rooms, um, say a fat Latina housekeeper in a drab worn out housekeeper's uniform in the place of our golden boy. Um, it's doubtful that her acutely shrugging her shoulders would have the same effect. So even when the bellhop, though the bellhop is and remains um, subservient to the people of color, his intrusion becomes an endearing and actually exciting transgressiveness. Moreover, the bellhop is actually the one character who does not actually apply makeup. Um, once, uh, I think sort of if you're into Lacanian things, there's uh, certainly some association that you can make between the shape of the mascara and other signifiers of the male position. Um, so in the context that we're given, he also cannot wear makeup because applying makeup here is to get bossed up. So what is cited here implicitly exactly by having the bellhop be this liminal figure is that white maleness is still the boss. Although the bellhop, because of his own class position, is not, or not currently, not yet, inhabiting this position. Only already feminized positions can get bossed up. So the bellhop as cuter, slightly queerer version of white maleness still, or precisely in that way, very effectively shores up 
the limits of how far transgressive fluidity of desires and identifications can reach. So the larger wager here then is that whiteness becomes more a norm as style and ritual than a stable attribute to, to bodies within this kind of performative capitalist society. So we meet here the capitalist pre premise and promise of self-transformation through consumption and social mobility through consumptive self-transformation instead of through structural change. And the metaphysics at the heart of late consumer capitalism is, we may say, the promise of the performativity of performance, which also spells unprecedented precarity. So in other words, the Promethean promise is that individual doing can indeed unilaterally create being. So the promise at first looks neutral and open to all shapes and versions of you just do you. Everyone can and should aspire to be anything through managing their life and investing in their appearance, however, as cultural, dominant cultural and institutional Im imagery surrounding us makes very clear, that ideal that we are to aspire to is the ideal of wealthy, white-ish, heteroflexible, male-ish subjectivity. Um, and if one looks more broadly at uh, advertising that actually has, brings in bodies of of color and plays with gender positions. What we see is that the increasing inclusion of um, people of color's gender queerness that runs through these kind of edgy visual discourses tends to be accompanied by strategies of rarifying the bodies of people of color. So it's, it's actually removed from any kind of context. Um, moreover, queer bodies of color must be glamorous to qualify for inclusion and then usually require real whiteness, quote unquote, next to them to ensure that the difference remains perceptible. And in that way, the bodies of color that are being included are also being turned into kind of fashion accessories of the white bodies, which um, at least if you look here or also in the other body, actually in terms of their own gender presentation, aren't that all that unusual, are actually relatively citing standard norms of their, what we would attribute their gender position. So they obtain a queer and progressive edge precisely through the proximity to the people of color's body. And somebody actually unrelated at APA in the panel um, just said, uh, maybe part of the problem that white people have with whiteness is that it's boring. There's, there's nothing edgy to it and it's boringness also has a horrible history that we want to disavow, but it's also, it's not edgy. So as things move, there's the, in, when everything becomes about innovation ex extraordinariness, um, there is a kind of difficulty in this with difficulty with the boringness of whiteness. Um, I think that's not all that there is, but it's an interesting um, speculation. So, but I find here or want to offer for consideration here is that the dynamic 
that is um, underneath the real expansions of diversity and fluidity is that a set of norms are being reiterated, rendered edgy, but also inscribed over again. So wealth makes sexy, free, and fluid, and to be wealthy, you have to be sexy, free, and fluid. A female black body can access power only through more, not less femininity, and arguably that goes more generally for female bodies, that um, presenting more masculine is not necessarily an accessory to moving, moving up, but actually gets punished. Whiteness is eminently desirable as something to have or to be, but relies on anti-blackness for its privileged survival in a world for a fluid, performative, neoliberal identity formation. And even if peop white people are to get used to being in class positions subordinate to people of color, queering whiteness allows upward mobility as the white bellhop's interest in mascara allows him to enter into that threesome constellation with the wealthy people of color as the golden boy, so keeping the American dream not only alive, but also aspirationally white, male, and skinny, able-bodied, and young. Uh, further feminization and queerness for the straight white man is already covered by becoming an object of desire, by submitting to being bossed around by a black woman and Latinx trans feminine guy because it is a loss in status structurally, but equality, even if that might be equality, that is already a form of submission and loss when one starts from privilege. Thinness, and I think particularly with the reifications of gender queerness, then often these, these images are very, very much uh, negotiated through a particular thinness. Thinness is a non-negotiable requirement for entry into this new gender fluidity, um, which now is open to bodies for, of any gender, race, and sexual orientation. And um, I'm thinking particularly Tressie McMillan's Thick and Sabrina Strings, Fearing the fa uh, Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, really help unpack how, how thinness is bound up with its racialization and anti-blackness. And finally, epidermal whiteness guarantees nothing, but hegemonic whiteness is everything, and it is an impossible ritual into which all of us are enlisted and which all of us fail, at which all of us fail to varying degrees and with variations in the severity of the consequences. Okay, so um, I'm trying to find, this is also, I don't want to fall into the sport, the favorite sport of the critical theorists. We f find what is all the things that are wrong with things. So part of this um, also is going to the second part is, well, so how would we imagine, given that we're not going to get rid of advertising overnight, um, maybe examples where, where a different kind of aesthetic can be found and started to be elaborated, what, what would that look like? Um, so here's an attempt, um, arguably, this is, <laughs> it's always, uh, yeah. The, the finding, finding where it still is part of the whole existing structures is often a lot 
easier, I found, than, than thinking about what, what might be pushing the edges of the envelope. So here's an attempt at the quiet force of ordinariness. And it's interesting and perhaps telling that the, the, the Melbourne commercial did actually receive only very little um, pushback from conservative groups and people watching it. Another ad actually did receive a lot of pushback um, and a lot of people making, actually going through the trouble producing counter ads. So, so using the same thing and then doing something showing how horrible the ad is. Um, and this ad has actually far less promise of hot queer sex and is visually relatively boring. So and this ad is actually the Gillette um, 2019 first shave the story of Samson ad which uh, features a trans teen and his father in front of presumably their garage door, then their living room, and in their bathroom. Um, and the argument that I'd like to explore with you here is how the very ordinariness and intimacy portrayed in the commercial that make, makes for its or what makes for its aesthetic and potentially transformative force um, and hence also depending on one's investments also for that kind of threat. Um, it's set in, in Toronto, which is kind of interesting since it was mainly aired in, in the US market. Um, and I'd be curious because I think, as I pointed said initially, um, I think race functions differently in, in Canada, slightly differently in Canada than in the US. So, so I'd be really curious to, to hear sort of what the read of, of um, from your perspective is on this. So here's the story of Samson. So maybe it was also so challenging to the US because shaving now becomes an exercise in geography. Um, so, <laughs> but, so first, the garage door and what we see of the building seems very regular and um, we only actually know that it's a house in Toronto because the script prompts us. Um, looks rather enormous to me as a garage door, but that, that might be um, all North American garage doors look enormous to a person of European extraction, I think. 
the pavement, my pavement in the front also is really simple, non-structured concrete. There are no frills. Um, the living room um, looks like it is uh, you know, not just ordinary, but um, uh, furnished with furniture that we know from a certain Scandinavian <laughs> producer where all of our furniture has first names, which is really lovely to be on first name basis with your furniture. <laughs> it even looks like if you look at the top of the shelf, it looks like the family gathered up the objects that might have been in greater disarray and just fit them on the shelf next to the couch. The clothes of the father and the son are relatively non-remarkable. In fact, if you look, the, the father's sweater is accidentally riding up and covering his shirt collar. Um, what does stand out is how they both sit on the couch. They're in intimate, familiar proximity to each other. And it's clearly two bodies that are comfortable relating to each other. At the same time, the father is leaning back, giving his child to the space to tell his story, but he remains engaged with a really slight smile playing around the corners of his mouth, a smile that seems to express also his feeling awkward about being on camera, as probably most ordinary people would, while also seeming very proud and happy to be there with, with his kid and his story. And not only is the father's relaxed pose and ease here making a statement about it not being a big deal to be a parent of a trans kid, but it also projects a sense of normality of being a black father, being comfortably and presumably stably, ongoingly involved in his kid's life here. There are not, no fanfares, just how things work when one has a decent, stable living space and a life to build together. So, and that aesthetic of ordinariness, ease and familiar trusted intimacy is maybe the most strikingly visible in the bathroom I mean, in a way, that's of course the case because, well, Gillette is trying to sell us products that we would use in the bathroom. But if you think about that, most people, I mean, I don't know, but the makeup users among you might correct me, but makeup tends to be also associated with the bathroom, yet we saw that nowhere near a bathroom. So the setting is kind of interesting here in terms of we're going to a very ordinary room. Um, it's also in most places, and I think particularly in the context of transgender, this is really interesting that we go to the bathroom. It's one of the less glorious rooms probably in most houses. Um, it's also generally one of the gender neutral spaces in most smaller homes at least um, that don't have the luxury of multiple bathrooms. I don't know how, whether multiple bathroom houses do gender neutral bathrooms. Most of us grow up with gender neutral, uh, gender split. Most of us grow up with gender neutral bathrooms in our homes. Also, father and son remain fully clothed. We do not see them during a morning routine and get a casual glimpse of buff, well contoured bodies. We simply don't know. And it's also not important. What is more important here by keeping them fully clad the ad chooses to refuse the usual eroticization of clear and black bodies, and it also refuses to play into the curiosity 
so particularly around trans masculinity surrounding surgical modification of trans bodies. We can infer that Samson is taking testosterone since he mentions being glad about being, having reached the point where he is able to shave. But even while that change is uh, visibly and audibly brings joy to Samson, growing facial hair, a traditional marker of manhood and manliness is not fully anchoring what being a man means to him. So despite Gillette's t definitive tagline, the best a man can get, Samson actually emphatically speaks about an open-ended process of becoming. He's comfortable where he is now, but what it means is still something that he is working out. The second dimension of intimacy and rather quiet proximity that I'd like to observe is one, the one of the cameras, and with it, of course, our as audience, this gaze. So the final close-up of Samson is the only time other than the, that wide, a, a wide angle opening shot where he or his father look directly at us. So otherwise we are invited to listen and watch but the focus is on the two individuals in relation to each other. The intimacy that we are witnessing is one of two black men who are in relation with each other, relation that seems complex, tender, and clearly has so much more to it than the glimpse that we get to see. But, and I think this is really the salient point, it really does not need any reference to whiteness, not even to point out the absence of whiteness, not even does it seem to need us. This whole scene could function. We, we basically get to see something, we're talked to, we're informed, but actually the bathroom, is something we, we become invited in. We, we're not actually, our gaze is not necessary for this relationship to function. So the intimacy and its consequences are underscored when Samson emphasizes living a gendered body is a matter of becoming, learning and figuring out its meaning and its potential in relation to himself, others, and the world. He says, it's not just myself transitioning, but everyone around me is also transitioning. So transitioning is a relational collective process precisely because so many of our interactions are implicitly gendered. We all make presumptions. We treat people differently because we learn how, how gender functions as sort of the lubricant of our uh, relationships predicting how somebody will interact. And of course, somebody transitioning now means, well, actually that lubricant no longer lubricates in quite the same way. And so we all undergo a collective process in which we find out that trans and cis are probably less different and more similar continuous and contiguous embodiments in constant elaboration, even though, of course, not all of us undergo that kind of re elaboration and its precarities in, in the same manner. So there's a lot more to say here, of course, also about how we might want to think about aesthetic practices than in relation to more generally political strategies and non-reformist reforms, right? This is still a private scene right? in a particular house. We don't have a large community here. Um, but I want to circle back also 
give us time to talk uh, to the beginning and end with a really brief coda on trans method. In their essay, Troubling the Waters, Mobilizing a Trans Analytic, Kai Green argue for a trans method derived out of the intervention of black feminism into feminism that made visible the presumptive whiteness and present absence of black women in feminist discourse. Green described this trans method as characterized by, quote, not perpetual alterity, but perpetual presence. It is the work of charting the present absences in multiple sites of intersection by demanding a moment of critical presence. It allows us to entertain, to, to see certain things that mi we might not normally see. It also enables us to understand how that seeing is being shaped. So rather than holding, I think the shift here is about, rather than holding what is other at a distance, so saying, oh, what are these transgender? Let us from a distance look at that phenomenon and study those people. A trans mode of inquiry is, in that sense, right, transitive transitioning, make it in transit, as also Betcher in the interview that I referenced at the start emphasizes, emphasize marked by proximity to and then also being affected by the object of our inquiry. This complicatedly affective proximity is connected to a second aspect that Green marks out, namely that the trans method is also a demand for, quote, the work of listening, understanding, and reading as both intellectual and political practices. It is a method, end quote, so I think what I would like to take for it from that is that it may be a method of apprenticing us to a form of responsiveness that practices responsibility by decentering, delaying, quieting the dominant voices while involving us in the form of engagement and building or at least attempting to build alternative relationships and communities. Thank you very much. <laughs>